Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Welcome to Bitches on Comics. I'm your host, S.E. Fleenor, and I'm Marvel's newest hero. I've risen from the ashes of secret wars and entered the all-new, all-different Marvel universe. Oh, I'm Sarah Sentry, and I'm the all-new, all-different villain. Hey everybody, today we have a question from John. Where did this question come from, actually? Because I don't know that part. I don't know, email? Twitter? Who knows? So, well, we got a question from somewhere, from John, and it opens with a bunch of really nice compliments, so thank you. But I'm gonna go ahead and start with the question, which is, does a current good depiction of a female character that has been badly handled in the past make it easier for you to read the older versions? For me personally, and I'm a boy, so I do my best to be aware of my privilege and the blind spots that it creates, it can. My example is Sue Storm slash Richards, one of my all-time favorite characters in comics. To say that Sue has not been handled the best at times over the years would be quite an understatement, but when she is good, she is very, very good. This probably leads me to laugh off some of Sue's more egregious moments in the 60s because the sexism of that era in general is so over the top with modern eyes that it seems quaint, and that the qualities that make her a great character are there just filtered through the lens and pens of two guys who grew up with that sort of treatment being the norm. So, yeah, that's an interesting question. I would say somewhat. And (laughs) what would you say? Yeah, I think somewhat is absolutely the appropriate (laughs) response. Sometimes a little bit. I can't think of a single character who's existed for decades who's a woman who's always been treated well. So it's almost like to be a reader of comics, especially in the big two, you have to have some ability to... Comics are more like myths, There's so many people telling them and retelling them. They become less about a character and more about a collection of ideas around a character. So yes, I would would be team somewhat and often yes. Like sometimes some of the old comics, especially Silver and Bronze Age, are so sexist, are so out of control that it just becomes so funny. And you and I talk about this a lot, Sarah. There's always multiple ways to read any sort of creative work. And sometimes I'm like shocked that other people don't see the queerness. You know what I was just thinking about is the haunting. You had mentioned some guys were like, oh, some people read this as queer. When it's like, you mean the lesbian saying lesbian things all the time? Yes, in fact, I do <laughs> see her as a lesbian. Yeah. Um, so there's, there's a piece of that too where like sometimes things are so queer from back then. Like... That Dazzler and the... Um... Grapplers. <laughs> <laughs> Even the name, the Grapplers, I'm like, so gay. oh. I'm just like, I mean, I'll go wherever they want me to go, I guess, including to Rikers. <laughs> yeah, grapple me along with you, ladies. Oh, my God. Yeah. So I think there's some of that, you know, I appreciate, John, you mentioned like the advantage of modern eyes, right? We can see things differently. However, I, I would like to think, had I existed at any point in, in history, um, I, I would think I had rights. 
<laughs> I think I would think that too. Um, hard to say. I know that there would have been a lot more opposition to that concept in some ways at the time. Also, I could have been lobotomized for being gay. Exactly, right? Like, but, like, there's a lot of ifs. <laughs> I guess not by like the mid-60s, but kind of in the mid-60s, depending on what your socioeconomic status was. So <laughs> I would say to you, yeah, sometimes it does work, right? I read Sue Storm today and I look back and I'm just like, honestly, there are times when Sue Storm has been written very well over the years. But there are times that are just as regressive, honestly. Like, I'll read something like out of a Dan Slot comic or even whenever she was just recently in a few different crossovers where I was just like, she's still being really badly written. You don't take the time with this character that you take with these other characters. And it shows all of the time. People dismiss her as being kind of just this schmuck who puts up with Reed all of the time. There's been decades of comics to argue with that because she will tell him there's the door, you know, sometimes. I've seen this in comics. So I always think it's interesting how little change there's been with a character like that because there has been moments that are great. And it's kind of the same with Jean Grey, where it's just like, I would love to be able to look at those early comics and just laugh it off and be like, haha, it's not like that anymore. But it is still sometimes like that for both of those characters. So I can look back definitely at Silver Age Sue Storm and kind of laugh because the dialogue that they give her is kind of the same as Janet Van Dyne, the Wasp. Whenever she first shows up, she is totally written by <laughs> Stan Lee and like, yeah, she's 100% just trying to get the guy. And so she has all of these really ridiculous lines like, I have an appointment with my hairdresser, Henry. I can't do super heroics today. <laughs> you know, all of those kind of ridiculous lines. And they're kind of funny. So I think that it's the same with Sue. I'll read an old Sue story. Like there's one in specific where she's supposed to be looking for somebody. I don't even remember. I think it's Namor maybe. They're supposed to be looking for someone. And she stops at a malt shop and is just like, hmm, I'm going to investigate here while I'm drinking this milkshake. And she's having a great time just drinking a milkshake. <laughs> just being like, all right, now back to the surge. <laughs> I mean, that's like hilarious because it is sexist. But I also like to think that if you're going to do a good version of Sue Storm, you marry those two parts of her. Like you marry the part where she's a badass, but then also the part where sometimes she just kind of wanders off and does her own thing because she's a mom. Like, I mean, she wasn't then, but she is now. Nobody seems to be able to balance the fun part of her with the badass part of her. And I think a lot of moms are both, you know? So, like, it just kind of, I don't know. Like, I have a lot of feelings about it because I love that character, too. I just have a lot of questions about how she's handled at various points in her life, you know, not just in the 1960s. And I feel the same about Jean and, you know, Wonder Woman. Wonder Woman's another character where it's just like, it got regressive. Yeah. It was somewhat progressive for its like gender politics for a while. And then it completely regressed to the point where it's like, I don't like reading that period of Wonder Woman. <laughs> like, that's not something that I can look back and be like, haha, because to me, I feel like, that's a character that still really strongly struggles with people even remotely meeting the same feminist theory that was put forward in like the 1940s, even in 2020. Balancing those things out seems to be really difficult for writers. So I don't know. What I really appreciate about what you were saying, Sarah, is like it's easy to think of sexism and flat portrayals as a thing of the past. 
but they're not a thing of the past. And, you know, who I think of when we talk about this is, you know, our girl, Poison Ivy, right? Like, how many times does she show up in a contemporary comic and she resembles nothing of the character we know or her queerness is stripped from her or her environmentalism is flattened and treated like a weird antagonism? It's not a weird antagonism. It makes a lot of sense. It's an antagonism that should be there, right? Like, we get it. The planet's dying. Hello? Poison Ivy is right, (laughs) as always. I even fall into that fallacious thinking sometimes where I'm just like, oh, things are better. But it's like, there's always a question mark at the end of that to me. Things are better? Are they? And how are they? Let's be specific, right? Like, things that are better is like, Danny Lore is writing Wonder Woman, (laughs) has written a Wonder Woman story. Like, that's, that's better. We know that's better. I do tend to be someone who laughs at a lot of things. I laugh at terrible things. I laugh because one of three reasons. Something's actually really funny. I'm so angry. I don't know what to do. Or like I'm on the verge of tears and I decide to laugh instead of crying. <laughs> and so sometimes when I'm laughing at old old comics, I'm like doing it with like a, wow, holy fucking shit. Do men hate women? You know? Right. Like, wow. That's funny. But like that's funny in a really sad way. So – I don't know. You know what I've been thinking about a lot, Sarah, is how life does imitate art, right? Like we see these depictions on TV and film, we read them in comics, and we think that's reality. So when we see a woman be like a silly airhead, whatever that means, like we all know what that means, but what does it actually mean? (laughs) Every silly airhead I've known in my life is a person with great depth who just talks a certain way and so people decide she is one thing or another. So I... I think that we have this opportunity to think about the depictions we're being fed and to say, oh, is that how people are? Or is that how the people who've been in charge of writing these stories think people are? There's an important gap between those things. And we can't always know, are we talking about a truth here or is this a stereotype? Are we talking about a specific person and then we don't have to apply it to all women but then you're like well there's one woman in your story so it must stand for all women <laughs> you know it's important to think about these depictions how they change over time but as you said Sarah how they don't change over time and how do we live with or how do we you know not live with <laughs> depictions of female characters queer characters trans characters that are not prevalent enough middling at best or outright egregiously offensive. Fuck, I wish I had the answer. I kind of just choose not to read them. Well, I didn't choose not to read them. (laughs) (laughs) That's because you've read every comic. (laughs) Unfortunately, I've read a lot um, that I hated. But then also sometimes the things that I hate help me see what I like, you know? So I think that it's very interesting. I grew up on a lot of different comics. And let's talk about Lois Lane or something. That's a character who... Comics always reflect the times that they're in, and they're this very interesting marker, right? Superhero comics especially. You start 1940-ish, and literally everything has to do with the axis and all of this stuff. And, you know, it changes over time. Like today, superhero comics are completely different, and they've changed in some ways and not in others, but it tells you where we're at, kind of, right? Like, In the 90s, comics were a certain way. In the 70s, comics were a certain way. It all has to do with reflecting society and what the norms are of that time. 
And so I always think that superhero comics are very interesting for that reason. But you have a character like Lois Lane, who, you know, in the 1940s is this girl reporter who people underestimate, but she is a badass and she stands up for herself and she doesn't need Superman to save her. And she definitely doesn't need Clark Kent to save her. So she goes around doing reporter things and she's a badass. And then, you know, regressive times, we have a change of political leanings and, you know, we go into the age of McCarthyism and like all women, you see this in Hollywood as well. All women essentially lose their brassy, more interesting, vulnerable, but in a strong way kind of veneer. And it goes into... Doris Day and what we want women to be like is like they need to be at home cooking and that's what we see from Lois. Lois does that then. In the 70s, we start to have people be a little bit more interested in feminism and stuff like that and you reflect that in the Lois comics. In the 80s, you know, it's all the overworked woman whose personal life is failing stereotype, you know, and then it goes into a little bit more of a hopeful version of that with Man of Steel. And it just goes on and on with Lois until last year we're reading about drunk Lois, <laughs> like, is a hardened reporter and is dealing with the Trump administration and kind of like a analog version. Yeah, I mean, look at Lois over time and you're just like, well, that is more about the times than it is about Lois as a character almost, you know? So I think that that's another element. I feel the same about Wonder Woman, where it's just been like such a bizarre journey that it's hard to be like, well, things are better now. I mean, yeah, of course, things are a little bit better now with both of those characters. And you get to see both of them have autonomy, which is <laughs> unfortunately really rare in their stories. But also reading back like 50 years is still different than reading back 60 or 70 years, you know, whenever they actually had kind of a more interesting story for a time period. I think what you're saying about the different decades and the trends is part of what I'm trying to get at with this idea of thinking about comics more like myths. And you know who I think we talked about it with? Anthony Oliveira, which tracks. And to me, it's so important to think about characters as having these sort of constellations of stories around them. And the stories that I find truest about a character like Poison Ivy or a character like Jean Grey may not be the one someone else finds the truest, so to speak. But to me, that's more important to think about what they're doing within the time, within the body of work around the character, all of those things. You can shop from anywhere doing pretty much anything. You might shop while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast. And however you shop, we all know and love the thrill of the hunt. But do you also know how to get the thrill of the best deals? Because Rakuten shoppers do. With Rakuten, they get the deals they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Sephora, Nike, and even Expedia if you're looking to get some travel in. And getting cash back doesn't mean you have to miss out on sales because those can just be stacked right on top. It's easy to use and based on a simple idea. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers, and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back through PayPal or check. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, 
Or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. I've been grappling a lot with an idea from Ta-Nehisi Coates. So there's this saying, I believe it's from Martin Luther King Jr., that the arc of history is long, but it bends toward justice. And Ta-Nehisi Coates says, well, no, (laughs) no, it doesn't. Why would we think that? And I used to be someone who very much ascribed the belief of the arc bending toward justice. I think that's a very hopeful feeling. And I don't think what Ta-Nehisi Coates is suggesting is we don't have hope. I think what he's suggesting is we can't just have hope in progress. Progress won't just happen. We make progress happen. And when we see things like the rise of fascism, the rise of demagogues, which is happening not just in the U.S., but around the world and being beaten back in some places, as we've seen, it's important to remember we have a responsibility here, right? Like it's not, we're not passive and we're not passive readers. We're not passive consumers of comics or TV or film. We have the ability to push back. And if it didn't matter, I don't think Chris Pratt would be whining to all of his friends and getting them to do like an anti-smear campaign around him, you know? Like these conversations do matter. So how do we then hold these stories to account? How do we hold the creators to account? How do we hold the editors to account? How do we hold the companies to account? One of the ways with our dollars, but another way is in supporting those stories we love, finding those creators who are doing something powerful, supporting the Vida Ayala's, the Leah Williamson's of the world. Like we've got to have their backs and we've got to be picking up their work because they're telling the stories we like. So I think it's important to remember that we do have power. It may not be the power we think we have. And also like if you're a creator, your power is like, go write your fucking stories, right? Like we need them. We need your stories that are progressive, that are fighting to make the world a place that is better. But we can't just trust that someone else will do it. We all have a role here. Also, literally, I used to have this comic that had Batgirl on the cover and Batman and Robin were getting pummeled and they were just like, Batgirl, we could use a hand over here. And Robin's like, we've got a problem. And Batgirl goes, I've got a bigger problem, a run in my tights. And like, I thought that that was the funniest thing I had ever seen and just read that comic again and again and again because the whole time she's just like, my female vanity is getting in the way of my crime fighting. (laughs) and It's like, it's so offensive that it becomes really comical. Yeah. Sometimes you can have fun with them anyway. Because like, there's a read of that, right? That's like, she just doesn't want to rescue men from themselves. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Which I love, right? (laughs) Maybe I side-eye like a dude who has that comic in their collection, but I've read it because of what it was, right? And like, it's nice sometimes to be like, oh, yeah. That's what you guys will do if you're allowed to get away with it. (laughs) (laughs) That's the world that we're fighting against right now. 
Oracle existed whenever I was a little girl. Like, that's what I grew up reading. That was the Barbara Gordon that I knew was somebody who was tough and smart. And all of the superheroes relied on her. And she was the best. And so, yeah, I mean, it's an interesting marker in time, right? Like, it changed over those years. And that doesn't make that Batgirl story good, but it does make it still kind of funny. Right. Yeah, that's a good delineation, right? Like we can note the flaws in it and have sort of an enjoyable experience of it at the same time, you know? Right. (laughs) And that doesn't always work either. Like that's very case specific. Oh my God. We're like, oh, this fridging is fun. No, never. Not fun. Not too much. No, no. Um, Yeah, it's very case specific. I do not have the same kind feelings towards many, 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 many other comics that are just pointedly offensive. Totally. John, what a great question. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks for asking us something that makes us think so freaking hard. We covered so many topics because there's so many facets to what you ask. So thank you. rate and review the podcast that you like five stars on um you know the place that you listen to them which is usually maybe itunes spotify perhaps stitcher who knows i'm not one to judge i don't mind whatever way you listen to them please rate and review with all the stars and with all the nice words week's comic of the week is in waves by aj dingo holy crap (laughs) this book's so amazing yeah no this book is ridiculous i was just blown away like what (laughs) is happening there's beautiful beautiful history there's a tragic tragic story it's a story about surfing i guess and so surfing (laughs) yeah it's hey here's my surfing comic but it's about losing a partner he loses his partner and it's also him talking about the history of surfing all of the kind of celebrity that comes up around surfing so of course we're talking about duke the famous surfer who blew everybody's minds at the Olympics and then kind of the stories that come after that and how we have kind of bro-ish culture around surfing. Right, and talking about how surfing predates colonization and was a Polynesian form of travel and the art, oh my God, is so beautiful. And to tell two stories so perfectly balanced is really hard. It's hard to balance two different narratives in such a way they come to such a satisfying conclusion. And damn it, if he doesn't nail it. I think it's very important because I know Hawaiians that are just very upset (laughs) about all of the things. And they should be because Hawaii was also colonized. Yeah, exactly. Did you know that colonizers brought goat heads to the beaches because they didn't want the natives walking around barefoot anymore? Colonization sucks (laughs) so badly. Yeah, It is very terrible. And I just think that people forget that with Hawaii a lot because they're just, oh, I went and had my vacation at Hawaii and there's all of these wonderful resorts. And I'm sure that they're all so happy for the taxpayer money and stuff like that. I remember whenever the the governor of Hawaii was calling out Donald Trump and everybody was like, well, we're going to boycott Hawaii. And it's like, you can't boycott a place that you fucking colonized. (laughs) Yeah. All of that shit. So I think that like the history of surfing, the history of Hawaii, and especially the history of colonization in Hawaii is something that we almost never talk about. It's not a story about colonization. 
but it shows the after effects of that, right? It shows parts of it and it shows how that does influence the culture there, right? And the story that they're going through. I think that's so important. You're absolutely right. It has such a sense of, you know, I think so often in stories and in comics, people tell stories where it's like really encapsulated and they're like, oh, it takes place in this time. And what I loved about this is it's like, we're connected to all these other times. This Mm -hmm. goes back to the Hawaiian roots of surfing and the Polynesian roots of surfing. This goes back to the colonization. It goes back to these, you know, stunt surfers and all these different pieces. And I just think it makes such a powerful story. I I read a review that was like, it's kind of a thin narrative spread out over a lot of pages. And I was like, Mm. you're dumb. (laughs) This is fucking perfect. This is what it should be. And oh my God, the art. Oh, the art is so ridiculous. It's so expressive. And they just make really interesting use of the colors, I think. But I would never say that it was not a lot of plot because there's not that much dialogue and there's not that much narration. But it's a story that really (laughs) goes through the art. You know, you, you see the story play out and it's a quiet story. Like it shouldn't be them talking all of the time or it shouldn't be anything that whatever that reviewer is trying to fit it into. I know, right? Because it's a story of grief. So what is grief? It fucking takes time. So like, how do you explain your feelings of grief, but your feelings of acceptance at the same time without giving it space? You wouldn't want to do that. So I haven't read that review, but I don't think I agree with it because I would say that this gives the perfect amount of space. It is a longer book, but it gives you a lot to look at. And it's also something that I think that, you know, we don't, give enough credit to our rereads. Like this is one that I'm going to be able to read again in five years or 10 years and be like, God damn, this really was a beautiful book. I'm going to find new things at that time because of the space that it allows itself. If it were shorter, I don't think it'd be as moving. Yeah, I'm totally on the same page. Thinking about the cover and the way the waves are layered and the way the lettering fits into the waves, giving it sort of a three-dimensionality. Like Holy shit. And there's one person. Yeah. He took so much time to build this rich, engaging, grief-infused world that just, it's so unique and it's so engaging. I loved every single panel on every single page. I love the art style. I liked the narrative. I We've talked about this before. I enjoy comics that have few words. I also like ones that are super wordy, but there's something special to comics that really rely on the visual aspect of storytelling. And so for me, this was just incredible. I loved every page. Yeah, I think that that's something where very seldom am I just you have to read this book, you know, or something. But I think that this is one, because people always go, what comic could I hand anybody? And they'll say something like Craig Thompson or something. I'm like, no, don't hand hand (laughs) that guy's work to just anybody. There's all kinds of problems in there. But I feel like this is one where I feel very comfortable giving this to a wide array of people because it is dealing with so many deeply personally felt moments, but also teaches you something. Mm-hmm. We've talked before about how neither of us is really an ocean person. And, you know, I didn't know much about surfing. I think I've touched a surfboard once, maybe. <laughs> like I had no idea. And then suddenly I was like, oh my gosh, I knew it had an indigenous root, but I hadn't really thought about how important that was because I'm a white person. And it was nice to just really be like, oh my God, yes, of course, this is so important. It's such an incredible way to deal with grief and loss through like a history making project, right? Like he's not just telling us a story of what happened. He's 
placing himself and his partner who passed away in the narrative of surfing and letting surfing not be what I was raised to think it was like but like really having it be like no surfing is this huge thing and it's also this form of healing for the main character right like to be a part of the epicness of the ocean to be a part of his own culture to be able to grieve especially in like white culture fucking is not here for grieving we do not let people grieve and so to see someone be like not only am i gonna grieve i'm gonna do it through my culture i'm gonna do it in such a way that i can really engage with what it means to lose and like you said accept that because i'm not resisting the feeling of grief and it worked for me oh yeah i mean this was a brilliant comic i know a lot about surfing what random Weirdly, yeah. I have weird information in my head. Whenever I was a little, little kid, I got an old, old, old book that was <laughs> Hawaiian folktales. And so I was obsessed with this book. Like I loved folktales from all around the world. I read a bunch of books like that whenever I was a kid. And I loved this book because it was all these, I mean, we do have to discuss the fact that this was probably almost definitely written by a white writer and like all of that kind of stuff. So it's not like I am, you know, firsthand Hawaiian culture person at all. I've never been to Hawaii. I have no idea. But I loved that book and it led to me reading a lot about how they built canoes and how like they traveled and stuff in Hawaii back in the day. So I read a lot about surfing early on. And then, of course, you know, you hear about Duke. Like, that's an important story because that's another one of those times where the Olympics were specifically geared for white people, essentially. And then, you know, somebody who was not white came and just blew everybody away. And <laughs> they were like, what? It's like the 20s. I don't know how to wrap my head around this. <laughs> so all of that. The later history of it is interesting as well because you see how it goes from being this thing where it's a very specifically Hawaiian thing then a bunch of white people are doing it and stuff like that. And now, once again, we all think of Hawaiian, we think of surf culture as basically being like blonde dudes in California. And <laughs> that's yeah. part of it, certainly, but it's not the whole thing. And so, yeah, I mean, that was part of it that I thought was so great was is that you would just go, oh, it's a surfing story. And it's just like, yeah, but it just tells you how much complexity there is in that and how much complexity there is in the things that we do and the things that we love. And even if they're just kind of sport things, that doesn't indicate the end of it, right? Because I think of something like football and I'm like, I don't care. I don't know. And then, you know, somebody's like, this was played 5,000 years ago or something. And I'm like, what? There's always yeah. something deeper to it, right? Even if it's something that you don't engage with, right? It doesn't matter what we're talking about, like any kind of thing. There's always a deeper history than I think what the layman is aware of. And once again, here we are, landlocked. <laughs> we have no idea. <laughs> but that's part of what was so beautiful about this book. And it connects us to surfing through grief, right? So yeah. I don't know about surfing, you know, other than what I've read, but I do know grief. And I do know what it's like to lose somebody. And I think that that connection obviously is like, well, hell yeah, no, I'm 100% on this surfing story now. <laughs> yeah, it made me appreciate both like surfing and grief differently. And I guess our means of healing, I really was thinking about, you know, because I, I, we've talked before about how we both have experienced significant loss and grief in our lives. And for me to think about the ways that I healed intentionally and unintentionally, and then to see a character, a person who characterizes themselves, how they grapple with it was just like really 
I guess soothing. It felt very soothing to read this book and exciting. And again, oh my God, the art. I was obsessed. I was like, these waves are what? So beautiful. And I think waves represent an awesome opportunity for artists. And it's nice to see someone take that and do it their own way. Yeah. I also think that it was interesting that there was always such a distance between us and her, right? The person who was lost. I think that him trying to understand his lover through these other people that knew her is very interesting. And the way that he asks her friend, her cousin, her brother, and they say, oh, I knew different parts of her. Like I knew this person who was like my annoying kid sister. And then I knew somebody entirely different later. We had completely different relationships over the course of her life. And I think that that's something that makes the grief more poignant in some ways because he is kind of confessing, as much as I loved this person, as much as I was completely connected to this person, we like slept in the same bed for years and like all of that kind of stuff. There's still a distance between you and the people that you love that sometimes you don't know about them until you ask other people because they knew them in a different way. And so trying to create that more complete portrait of somebody who's lost to you, I think, is something that a lot of us do after we lose somebody. Mm, So well said. Just a really, really powerful, incredible book. In Waves, highly recommend, especially if you like the ocean. But you know what? Especially if you don't. Good stuff. (laughs) Yeah, it was good for our landlocked selves, so maybe you'll like it too. (laughs) We are a podcast that is all about making comic books more accessible to LGBTQ folks and women. So if you have a question about anything related to comics, comic adaptations, pop culture in general, conventions, cosplay, you name it, That's what we're here for. You can send us your questions at bitchesoncomics at gmail.com. Unfortunately, Gmail does not like the word bitch. They're pretty judgy about it. So (laughs) we can't have it spelled out. It is B.T.C.H.E.S.O.N.C.O.M.I.C.S. at gmail.com. And yeah, remember, there's no I'm bitch. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so by rating and reviewing us on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Sarah Century, and you can find me at www.sarahcentury.com and Twitter and Instagram. Still Sarah Century on those. I'm Essie Fleenor, and you can learn more about me at essiefleenor.com. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at at se underscore Fleenor. Bitches on Comics is recorded by Kate Warner, who plays in the band Churchfire. You can find them at churchfiremusic.com. Our music is recorded by Katie Taylor, who plays as Earth Control Pill. You can find her music at earthcontrolpill.bandcamp.com. Bitches on Comics is recorded in Denver, Colorado. We want to recognize the indigenous peoples who have inhabited and do inhabit this land. The Arapaho Nation, the Ute Nation, the Cheyenne Nation, and others who have been erased from our history and collective memories through colonization. stranger, I'd like to introduce you to something new, or perhaps something very, very old. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine is a horror fantasy medical mystery, following the titular monk turned traveling medical investigator. 
Follow Radolf as he navigates a nightmare world in which viruses are gods and the human race are not their favored children. Steeped in history and an aesthetic that can only be described as a combination of occult academia and laboratory Judaica, the heresies of Radolf Burntwine have been described as Umberto Echo meets H.P. Lovecraft. For more information, check out the Patreon at thorb.info. But take care, dear stranger, for some truths are best left unknown.